Welcome to the Cash and Carry podcast, where we help you make wiser financial decisions and build better money habits to increase your wealth, health, and happiness. Today, we're talking about how the cost of living and inflation are changing our mindset around money. Our financial situations may have changed, and many of us haven't felt this kind of pressure before. Maybe it's a little debt, or maybe you just can't seem to get ahead. If this sounds like you, I have a treat for you today. I've got two behavioral scientists to help us navigate this new normal with proven ways to help. Michelle Hilscher is a vice president at BE Works, and Juan Camilo Salcedo is the regional director in Latin America at BE Works. You're going to learn about four financial trends that may be holding you back and how to fix them. So let's do this. Michelle and Juan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. We're really excited. <laughs> yeah, it's a real pleasure. I always love having a behavioral scientist here because you guys tell us what's really going on with our money. Absolutely. It's really nice to be here and to be able to talk about some of the hidden biases and other things that people don't necessarily know is, you know, influencing their behavior. <laughs> We're going to reveal all. Okay, let's jump right in. So the first question I have is um, things have really changed since the pandemic. The cost of living is making it really hard to live. And now with inflation and interest rates on the rise, we really seem to have less and less money. Has our mindset changed over this time? I think I can start there um, for us. And what, what we've been realizing is that, you know, there's two things that are happening. Number one, we have biases and we have different shortcuts that we always use no matter the conditions, no matter the environment, no matter, you know, what the market's doing. And those things are happening and they have been happening uh, through the pandemic. And so they have predictable kind of outcomes that we're seeing that mean that we're very similar despite what's gone on during the pandemic. But then there are other things that have, I think, made certain biases more pronounced than normal, maybe, because of the pandemic and, and sort of shifted the way that we relate to money and what we're actually doing with that money. Um, for example, if we're thinking about you know, credit, then if we're looking in Canada, for an example, uh, what we would see is that, yeah, we've got folks who've actually seen some success, maybe not success that they've necessarily had in the past when it comes to paying off uh, money that, that they have spent and, and loans that they uh, owe against. And so I think what it means is that we've got folks who are feeling maybe more optimistic than normal maybe a little bit more competent than usual as they're looking at, you know, what might be coming in uh, the year, the year in front of us. So that's a good thing. And I think if we're looking maybe more in, in Latam, which is where Juan's located, then what we're seeing is that during the pandemic, as people were, you know, kind of thinking about how to use their, their money, uh, that there were some changes that happened there too. And that is with regards to, you know, maybe paying not with, uh, not with credit, but actually looking at alternative ways of paying. And so I think folks were maybe a bit more experimental and trying to, to pay in ways that weren't usual for them. And I think what that means is that maybe they're more likely to try other types of financial behaviors uh, that they normally would not. So it could be something that we can capitalize on, taking advantage of people's flexibility of mind. And, and if I can um, just jump in and build on what Michelle just mentioned, 
In Latin America in particular, um, there's two components that play a big role. First, the, the large um, economy that is not formal, the informal economy, uh, where a lot of low-income individuals in particular um, work. And secondly, a very a growing participation of fintechs. So uh, especially uh, middle and low-income individuals have been taking advantage of these alternative modes of payment, of acquiring funds to, uh, to purchase the things that they want. And that has been playing a big role. But I think um, something that is sort of transversal, that, that, that captures uh, everywhere in the world, the global economy, is the worry uh, that is coming for the next year, right? We're coming out of a pandemic coupled with the sort of global instability precipitated by the situation in Ukraine and Russia. And now there seems to be a, a, a looming global tightening of credit and of funds. And so that's going to be something that is going to be uh, on people's mind. And so that also starts to build on what we call the scarcity mindset. The scarcity mindset where we feel, we start to feel, even at this point where we might not feel like there's less cash in our account, less money in our account, that starts to play, a role, uh, play an important role. And it can be monetary scarcity mindset, so scarcity of, of funds, but it can also be that you're busy trying to get another job, you have less time, so scarcity of time, and scarcity of cognitive resources uh, also uh, happens as a result of, of, of all these um, different types of scarcity mindsets. And that has a direct and oftentimes detrimental impact on our financial decision making. Right. I remember you guys, um, some of your research, you also talk about uh, things like Tunneling, that can also be a part of the scarcity mindset and dealing with like the present bias. What are these? Certainly. So, so um, what happens when you're in a scarcity mindset is that you're only focused on uh, the funds that you have now, your necessities, your needs in the moment. And so what that uh, brings about is, what, you, as you mentioned, a tunneling effect where you fail to take into account other alternatives, other options, other solutions maybe to the problems that you have, other solutions to your financial conundrums. Um, and so that has a negative impact on your overall decision making. Um, and uh, likewise, the, the, the present bias where you're just focused on what you need right now. What do I need right now? And you fail to uh, put into perspective what you might need in the future. So there is a sort of um, uh, focusing on present needs at the detriment of future needs. Right. I've got a nice example there, actually, from some of the work that we've done. Um, I don't know, Karen, if you've ever like taken advantage of one of those retrofit programs, but you know, some governments will say, you know, if you install new windows, we'll give you back some of what you spent. Or if you get a more eco-friendly furnace, then we'll pay back some of what it costs to buy and install that. Um, so we, we've worked with clients who are running these programs. And what they find is that 
a lot of people are not actually taking advantage of money that's on the table for them to claim if they go through with something like this type of retrofit. And what we realized there is that a lot of times it's households, right, who have this kind of scarcity mindset that's determining for them uh, where they look for solutions if they're cash strapped. And where they're not looking is typically these kinds of programs because they maybe just aren't on those folks' horizons. Like they just don't recognize that it's an option. So that's kind of tunneling where you just don't see the solution. But then the other issue is that there's a real fear that if you apply for this, that it'll take a long time. You're going to have people coming to your house. It's maybe not going to be a really fast and simple process to get the money reimbursed. And so that sort of uh, anticipated hassle is something that is really off-putting. And it makes people feel like, you know, I'm already losing time in other parts of my life. I'm already maybe losing hours, which I could spend working that could help to offset my financial concerns. Am I going to make that worse for myself by applying for this program? And so we actually did some research and what we found is that you really have to make immediate benefits obvious to these folks because they're super present biased. And so you can't say to them in a few months, the money will re be reimbursed and you'll also see savings on your, you know, your, your gas bill or your energy um, utilization. It's just not enough. And instead, it's like, let's emphasize to folks that immediately you'll have a quieter furnace, you'll have a warmer home, it's immediate comforts that you'll feel. Uh, and we found that that was very, very helpful rather than trying to emphasize the money <laughs> that you get in time. Uh, I actually used one of these programs years ago. And it's true, it's hard, it's hard to like, um, you know, uh, think about how it's going to benefit. But because my husband and I are science people, the first thing we did is we built a spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> to see, you know, how, how this could work. And I know that that's an unusual approach, but just let me say, if anyone out there is facing <laughs> one of these programs, it's actually really easy to do. And it's true. Everything is quieter and uh, the windows are sealed better. So there's less cold in the house, but that's a great program. Uh, Juan, you we're going to mention something. Yeah. I was just going to say that um, we're actually, you can also leverage other behavioral principles. Uh, to counter that tunneling and that scarcity mindset. And, and, and one of that we're actually testing right now uh, in a project in Latin America is leveraging loss aversion uh, to optimize debt collection and also to help folks better manage their debt. So by making it very salient, what you can lose by not being on time with your uh, debt repayment, that really motivates people to get with the plan, get on, on, on that payment schedule. Uh, so what we're uh, trying out and we're testing out right now is uh, with low and middle income individuals, letting them know very clearly what can they stand to lose in terms of uh, maybe things that they could acquire, things that they could purchase if they don't keep their credit card payments. Uh, so that's another behavioral principle that can be leveraged you know, leveraging that loss aversion. What do you stand to lose? Why? Because losses, uh, you know, have a, a sort of a, a greater psychological pain on us that gain. So what do you stand to lose by not being on top of your of your debt management? That can be a powerful tool. Right. 
That sounds very helpful. Um, let's jump into question two. The way we spend has changed so much, right? We're shopping a lot more online and well, I'm using a lot less cash mm-hmm. and I know everyone must be too because we have credit cards and PayPal and Apple Pay and I can't keep up with all the other e-wallets because there's a lot of different ways to pay online. Do these different methods of payment influence our spending? I think they do. I think for the simple reason that, you know, when you pay in a way that's intangible, it's not painful. (laughs) So it makes it much easier to pay out and, you know, maybe buy more than what, what you really should. Yeah. Should I, should I want more pain when I'm paying? I mean, I, I like a little (laughs) pain, but not too much pain. I think a little bit of pain goes a long way when it comes to trying to to keep people um, on track with how much they they want to pay, what their budget might be. Absolutely. Um, And and there have been uh, a number of studies that kind of illustrate this point, how how that pain of paying differs between different payment methods. So uh, researchers have found, for example, when comparing cash to credit card payments, that you're less likely to recall and actually more likely to underestimate how much uh, people spend on a recent purchase when doing it with a credit card versus doing it with cash. So that sort of psychological effect that paying with cash versus credit card, for example, is very real, very uh, vivid. You know, going back to our old question or like the first thing we were talking about. So that was... Um, you know, how we maybe have changed behaviors during the pandemic. Uh, And we've definitely changed the spending categories in which we splurge. And I think much of it is a product of the fact that we've been locked up in home, in our homes, and there's certain things, certain activities we can't do, right? So we've spent more on maybe goods for our homes than we have on travel. Um, And that means that we've spent more in categories that are tangible, where there's like a leave behind that's very obvious in our homes. I think what that actually means is that there's a different way that we maybe think about the debt that we owe on those objects as compared to the debt we might owe on experiences like travel. Um, And so the way that we pay, I think, really then connects to the way in which we repay. And my suspicion, and I don't know that there's necessarily research on this yet, is that because we've spent and splurged a lot in the last few months on these durable goods, that we might actually be in a better place to be able to pay them off than if we'd spent a whole lot of money on things that are intangible, like, you know, meals on the go or Uber. Uh, And these are things that we're seeing in our homes, right? It's like I'm paying down the money on my couch or my rug or my barbecue. And it's kind of like very salient uh, reminders of what we've spent that might be motivating and have us pay back faster even maybe. Well, we're also, um, I've read through some of your research and it seems that we're not really rational when it comes to paying off this debt. We're more inclined to pay off a lower balance. Is this really happening? We're not thinking logically of which card to hit up first. That's absolutely true. That's the debt account aversion bias. That's a, a mouthful. But what it, it is, really is that we want to feel like we're making progress. And so if we have, you know, a, a single account 
um, then yeah, we'll put all of our, our possible payments towards that account. If we've got multiple accounts though, um, you know, we might in a logical way ask ourselves, well, if I, you know, what's, what account do I pick to put my, my limited funds towards? And I, I should be picking the account that has the li- highest rate of interest. Um, but maybe what I actually do is I pick the account where the amount that's outstanding is really small and easy for me to pay off so that I can say I wiped away some of the uh, accounts that I've got against my name. Um, and, you know, in the long term, that's not the best thing to do, though in the moment, it's, it's very motivating. Right. So is it okay? Or should we be hitting up the highest interest? Or is it good to have, you know, something motivating to get it off the the books? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question. And I think if we're looking at just the, you know, the criterion of getting a payment done, um, that I think in some ways, maybe having just, you know, a small amount that you can pay back and wiping away a single debt is is serving as almost like a foot in the door for people. So it might actually be something that motivates people to continue with paying down debt. Though in the grand scheme of things, I still think that, you know, we want to be able to figure out how to nudge people to pay off (laughs) the accounts where they stand to lose the most. Yeah, so, so um, I agree with with uh, Michelle. I think that um, paying off that that small debt can serve as a motivator, but we also have to be very careful of potential what we call licensing effects. Just because we pay off that small uh, debt, maybe on on uh, credit card that we have, which is the smallest one, uh, then we sort of feel like we did something good, and then we owe ourselves. Uh, some splurging or some pleasure. And those are like compensating psychological effects that happen, but that can be negative for the individual. If they decide to pay that the smallest uh, debt that they have, they might incur in that overspending behavior down the line, which is in the end detrimental to their financial health. Oh, I think I've done that. I've given myself some permission. It's like, I did good over here. Okay, now I'm going to have some fun over here. I've totally done that. My bad. (laughs) So I guess when you have also all these different areas of credit cards that are now in play or e-wallets, it's really hard to see how all these debts work together. They're not really visible now, are they? They're just kind of scattered all over the place. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're really good at... um... (laughs) In our lives, you know, having a focus that's looking one place and not another, uh, or you know, kind of compartmentalizing ourselves, I suppose. And, and I think that the way that we pay and the way that different financial products actually are available to us actually makes it worse than than what it otherwise might be. So this is going to be ongoing. You know, we're going to have more and more ways to pay beyond cash, of course. Are there any solutions that we can use to help us when it comes to all this intangibility of payments? Yeah, absolutely. So I think this is where, you know, we, we go back to that idea of tying it to the initial purchase or tying it to that experience as opposed to uh, trying to get people to think about all of the different accounts that they've got. And that way they can feel like they're making some progress. It's not necessarily that they're they're paying, you know, $200 towards a number of these different accounts, but instead that they've uh, paid for that $200, you know, bicycle or whatever it would be. Anything to add, Juan? Yeah, I think um, that 
same time to sort of, I mean, this is going to sound a little bit cliche, but any way you can make these things more tangible for yourself, be that, you know, uh, writing it out or remembering how those little uh, expenditures add up to your overall debt uh, can definitely put those things, you know, top of mind for you and kind of increase the pain that you feel, but that's actually what we want. And that's actually a motivator to uh, get people to, you know, pay on time, get on top of their debt management. So trying different ways to make it tangible. Uh, again, be that if you want to use physical envelopes uh, and put those different accounts in different envelopes that you have um, available to you in a visual manner, that can help any kind of reminder be that, you know, you can leverage your um, iPhone, your, your, your cell phone to provide reminders of, of your spending that can help. Okay. So like putting your iPhone uh, receipt or uh, cost in an envelope and kind of chunking it, then you've got groceries in this envelope or your new bike in this envelope. So when you see like it's 600 bucks, then you can, okay, that, that money goes on the credit card because that was the purpose I bought it for. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly what Juan's getting at. I think another thing to mention, and I think it's because it, it's timely to mention it, right? We're coming up towards the end of the year. And what we know is that when people are anticipating a big change in the year, you know, New Year's is coming, 2023 is just around the corner, um, that there is actually something that happens to us where we feel like we're turning a new page and there's an opportunity for us to be better than the past self. So mm -hmm. I think knowing that it's possible for us to kind of plan out how we want to be next year or plan out how we want to be now that, you know, we're moving uh, beyond you know, having turned a particular age, for instance, it's been a birthday. Um, and so the fresh start effect is really what that's all about. And trying to set yourself up with maybe a plan, uh, an implementation plan that you're going to carry through on, that can help as well. Okay. Something else that um, you could consider is leveraging um, the, the social power that your peers have. Um, and your peers can serve as sort of guards of your commitments. So if you make your commitments to make to have a better debt management next year and take advantage of what Michelle was just mentioning, the fresh start effect, say 2023 is the year that I get my credit card uh, uh, debt um, management uh, right, uh, and you make it public and you say, uh, Carrie, Michelle, you're going to be... Uh, my guardians are going to be there uh, to make sure that I make good on my commitment to be on top of my credit card. That is an, a, a further mo motivator to engage in that behavior that I have an intention to engage in, but that I actually want to breach that say-do gap. I want to become better at debt management, but I if I have that social support from my peers and they're every now and then reminding me, how are you doing with this? that's going to be an additional catalyst to bring in that intention into actual behavior. Right. So a commitment contract with your friends will help you get over this gap, the intention action gap or the say do gap. At the same time, we want more pain. So maybe our friends can also bring that pain as well if we're not meeting that commitment. <laughs> Is that right? 
Yeah, I mean, it doesn't have to be overt pain. You can still have your <laughs> friends be very nice to you. But just the mere fact of them reminding you, of, of asking you, how are you doing with your plans for 2023, of being on top of your debt management, that actually works as a motivator to uh, work and, and, and actually do those or engage in those behaviors that will get you to the place where you want to be financially. Okay, we want to be there financially for sure. So if there's any friends out there, get together and help each other with, with repaying all these different debts. So let's go into uh, trend three. And it's one that just boggles my mind because it's, it's everywhere now. It's the buy now, pay later microloans. I call them buy now, pay forever because I'm not really certain that everyone's paying them off. But they're everywhere. You can use them for groceries, electronics, and makeup. I mean, you can use these loans to buy lipstick. <laughs> they're everywhere. Do the buy no pay later loans influence our spending? I mean, they must have some effect because they're just so enticing to click. Absolutely. I mean, they tap into our present bias for sure. Uh, it makes it so much easier to, to pay for something that otherwise we might not, not be able to. And I think that if we, you know, look at people holistically, right? So we know that folks have credit cards. We know that folks are also maybe paying with, with buy now, pay later as well. Then we realize that it's a bit of a competition here and, and people have to figure out, well, what's the trade-off? If I can't pay everything off this month, then what is going to be the focus of my attention? What's gonna get my money? Um, and so I think that's where buy now, pay later is going to run into trouble because you know these are purchases that are often you know the smaller ticket items, right? It's the cosmetics, it's the clothing, it's not necessarily the large household purchase uh, that you might be making on your credit card. So that goes back to the point we were talking about, right? Tangibility. And if something's not there to remind you of the purchase, uh, then it doesn't stick in memory. And it's perhaps not the thing that you look to pay off immediately. Whereas seeing it sitting in your living, living room, it reminds you, yeah, I got to pay that down. The other thing is that from what I understand, buy now, pay later doesn't offer rewards like cashback or loyalty. So I think that that means in comparison to something like a credit card where you owe money um, that, you know, it's maybe just not the front burner priority for folks because they'd like to make sure that uh, they preserve good standing with uh, you know, lenders where there's some other reward or benefit uh, that's being offered to them. So that's certainly uh, what, what we've been thinking. Yeah, I, I see buy now, pay later. You can kind of extend uh, and smooth out that payment too, which you can't really do with a credit card. The downside mm -hmm. is if you miss a payment, then suddenly you're just walloped with all these fees. And especially yeah. if you have so many of these microloans on the go, I, I'm guessing it's hard to compart, like they're just little compartments. It's hard yeah. to see the overall viewpoint of, you know, where you are at with your loans. Yeah. I think that people have a hard time anticipating just how difficult it's going to be, right? If you think about making that one purchase, then you think about having to make that sequence of repayments for that one thing, not realizing they're going to juggle multiple different purchases that they've made. Uh, there was some research that we came across, which said that, you know, people, 43% of buy now, pay later users are actually late on a payment. And I bet if you talk to these folks before they made the payment that they would, or, you know, made the purchase that they would never expect that. Uh, 
Um, and I think it kind of speaks to like an atypicality neglect, which is something that a lot of us fall prey to. And that's where we just imagine that, you know, the future will be typical. It will have no surprises. And therefore we'll be able to manage our finances pretty easily because of that. And perhaps that folks are ignoring the things that come up that are unexpected that actually mean that they have less money available to make those payments because, you know, they're spending money because they've got family that came into town for a visit or because eh, they have to take their cat to the vet. Um, so <laughs> I know you're going to it happens. Um, you know, <laughs> cats get sick. <laughs> happen, but yeah. So those are you know certain types of biases that are are impacting people's decisions. And of course, you know, there's things that we can do to help. We don't want to just point out that <laughs> these are the the predictable biases that trip us up. Mm-hmm. Um, so a really simple thing that's been found to help people as they're deti- deciding what matters to them when they get a credit product or when they maybe are embarking on a buy now, pay later purchase is to have them imagine uh, what could be different next month and maybe have them look at, well, last month, were there any experiences that you had that you didn't expect that maybe incurred more costs than you'd ex- anticipated and budgeted for? Uh, and getting people to imagine, you know, that future based on actual experiences that have surprised them gets them to build more of a buffer into their uh, into their budgets, which would be good. And it'll help them to, to keep on track, I imagine, with buy now, pay later repayments. Juan, do you have a, something you want to add? Um, just that um, these buy now, pay later have been uh, growing explosively in, in Latin America. Um, and they do have a, a definite impact on people's uh, financial decisions. Uh, again, just to echo what Michelle said, because it's sort of like impulse buying. Like when you're at the supermarket and you're at the cash register and you don't really need it, but you see that chocolate bar, uh, which is very high calorie, uh, but you don't think about how it's going to impact your diet or your uh, well-being, your health in the long term. You're just driven by your need right now, your craving right now. Um, and so uh, these, these buy now, pay later uh, systems, uh, what they do is they tap into that. They tap into the present buyer. They tap into the scarcity mindset. Sometimes you need to. You need them. But what you should do is you tr- you have to try, as Michelle was pointing out, to these tac- tactics through thinking about what has been surprising about the past that could actually extrapolate into the future and make your life a bit more complex going down the line. Uh, how is that going to impact my life if I decide to engage with one of these buy now systems? I see this with budgeting too. People don't think about the atypical payments. They, they're they optimistic when they make their budget and they're like, oh, perfect. And then mm-hmm. something always happens because there's always something, right? It could be a cat. You may need winter tires. Yep. Your kid may need to go on a field trip. Like all these so-called random expenses actually happen quite frequently. Yeah. So it feels very much like that to me. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And I think that's that's the challenge, right? Is that people just don't expect those sorts of expenses, even though, I mean, they always happen every month in some shape or fashion. 
uh, and then what mean what that means is that it, it comes out of the money that they could be spending to pay back debt to pay back the loan yeah now I've read also something that can help is something you guys have called mental time travel oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> I don't know I think time time traveling sounds like fun but it's actually a solution to to dealing with all these loans yeah absolutely I mean so much of um, decision making about our finances involves thinking about the future and we're terrible at it. We don't really have the ability uh, most of the time to, to put ourselves into the shoes, the life experiences that our, our future selves will be having. Uh, so that means that yeah, we just don't do the things right now that we should be to, to help them out. And that can be you know, not paying down what we owe right now to ensure that they're financially secure in the future or maybe not saving for retirement and assuming that <laughs> they'll be fine down the road. So mental time travel is something that's come out of uh, the research uh, of a number of different scholars, uh, including Hal Hirschfield. So he very famously uh, created an experimental paradigm where imagine this, you take an image of your face and then it goes through a little bit of a, a morph. And all of a sudden you're able to see what you're going to look like when you're 80. And you're asked, well, how much will you, you know, put away in, in terms of retirement savings for that person? And when you're looking at that aged face, you're far more generous than if you're looking at just a, you know, an image of what you currently look like. Uh, so what we've done in some of our research is ask the question of whether that's the only way that you can actually have that future self-effect take place. Do we always have to be confronted with that aged face? Or are there maybe questions that we can have people ask themselves? Is it possible that maybe people write a letter to their future selves? And in that way, they do the time travel that they need to, uh, to empathize and really you know, put themselves into those shoes uh, and realize, I think crucially, that the things you value right now, who you are right now, what you care about, who you spend time with, those are going to be consistent. That's who you will be in the future. And I think we lie to ourselves because we think in the future we'll value different things. We'll be able to compromise in different ways than maybe we're comfortable with right now. So uh, my last question is all about personal finance apps. I am emailed daily and asked to review all these different apps. They're all for different things. Some are for spending, uh, savings. A lot of them are for budgeting. Nowadays, a lot of them for, are for investing. And they're like all over the place. And I always say no because, well, because I, 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 I had a hunch that your research played into this. So there are some surprising risks to using all these personal finance apps. Yes, there are. I think that one of the most um, problematic parts of it is that people compartmentalize and we are very naturally uh, looking for excuses for ourselves, right? So licensing, um, if we do a little bit of something over here to help ourselves, then we don't necessarily download an app that helps us with something like credit management. Uh, or debt management, right? If we're, we're helping ourselves with retirement planning, for example. So I think what an ideal state would be is to have an app that helps us to adapt or adopt more of a holistic approach to our financial lives and see the 
way that financial behaviors, many of them, you know, need to be enacted if we're going to actually be healthy. Absolutely. Something uh, additional to that that tends to happen with these, these finance apps um, is something that I also see a lot of people struggling with, with dieting apps, where, um, again, licensing affects uh, an important uh, impact. It's because you decide, I want to do, going to, you know, have this change in my life. So what I do is I download the app, but then I don't act upon it. I don't actually engage in the behavior that I'm being suggested to engage. Just because I downloaded the app, I feel like I've done enough, and that's where the buck stops. So that has a potential, uh, you know, negative downside to, to these, to these uh, numerous financial apps. I think I've done that too. Maybe I just don't like the app, but uh, no, I've definitely felt like I've accomplished so much just by finding the right app that suits my needs. I load it up and I'm like, done. Absolutely. So what is it we can do? I mean, we're inundated with all these different financial institutions, fintechs that want us to use their platform that are um, encouraging us that they have the best, latest, greatest. I, I don't know how to counter this. I mean, I'm like, get all the apps or get none of the apps, right? Yes. I think, you know, one of the things that I, I would recommend is firstly, for these apps, they should be taking advantage of the fact that people will set and forget, right? That we can definitely hand things over to the app in terms of our decision making for the most part. And I think a good app is going to have you know, some defaults that we can set up for ourselves. So, you know, there's an automatic contribution that is taking place every month that I have said yes to, but we've got to make sure that we go beyond that within any of these apps, because chances are you'll just allow that to be what is making the, you know, the financial future happen for you and you don't go above and beyond. Um, so an idea such as maybe an impulse savings prompt could be something that you would see in an app that's supposed to help with savings behavior, for instance, where you try to capitalize on the fact that people have made the effort to download the app. They've made the effort to set up the automatic contributions for themselves. That obviously must mean that they care about their savings behaviors, that they care about retirement planning. Um, and therefore, you know, if you can have them kind of remember that that's who they are and that's why they downloaded the app in the first place. That's why they set up those automatic, um, you know, contribution rules in the first place. Then you might be able to get them to be a little bit more generous and, and do a little bit more for themselves. And that's where we're not relying on a habit, which is perhaps what, you know, the, these apps can help us to encourage and instead are actually getting people to do things a little bit more spontaneously uh, at times. And I think that can, can encourage people to, you know, spend more or save more than, than they might otherwise. And uh, just to compliment what, what Michelle just mentioned, I think the first step, not only with, with finance apps, with, but with everything that we've been talking about with um, the intangibility of certain forms of payment, for example, with scarcity mindset, with present bias, is being aware that you're susceptible to these biases. Just the fact that you know that you're susceptible to these things and you keep them top of mind can help you to counter some of their negative effects. The, uh, the rest 
uh, as we all like to say, uh, we have to embed them into the choice architecture, the way that people uh, uh, make these financial decisions and the platforms and the environments in where they're make, making them. But certainly you have a very good first step is knowing that you're susceptible to these things that when money or time is scarce, then you might not be making your best financial decision, that you might be present bias and telling, keeping alternatives out or solutions out. Uh, that finance apps have to be taken in, in sort of a comprehensive manner so that you don't comp compartmentalize and start saving, uh, you know, at the detriment of maybe repaying some credit card debt. So being really aware of all of these uh, present biases, uh, biases, cognitive biases, is really the first step. Right. And not allow ourselves just to be so um, siloed into these different areas that the you know, this, the financial institutions want us to focus on, see how they they interplay. And I was thinking about um, the defaults. Like I know some of these apps set you up as a default to save 5% or 7%. You can put it in there. And it really is easy to set it and forget it and think, hey, I could actually be contributing more in the future, right? If, if you get um, a raise, you know, then who's to say you can't change that default and, and save more? So I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to set definite notifications every few months to say, hey, can you do better now? Can you contribute more to your retirement? Can you contribute more to your emergency fund? Can you contribute more to your fund fund, right? Or just save because we don't have to always have a goal. Is that the kind of thing that, excuse me, that we can do to, to nudge ourselves to change this default and to beat the war on these apps? Yeah, absolutely. I love that because we're not just thinking about a one-time behavior, right? We're thinking about a journey, a behavioral journey and setting ourselves up for success in that way. Um, I think that's one of the, the big things that we're, we're aspiring to do more of as behavioral scientists is to help people and help institutions to build out those journeys because we realize that what serves you well in a particular moment in your life probably is not actually helping you once, mm -hmm. you know, things have changed a little bit or time has passed. And yet we know that people have this tremendous status quo bias, right? Like we like what's familiar. We like what's served us well in the past. So we need to figure out how do we break in <laughs> to people's lives at the right times and give them the right cues to ask themselves, is it time to make the change yet? And to build into the you know, first steps of the journey, the expectation that you'll need to change as you move along. Because I think the problem perhaps for people is that they feel like if they set themselves up, this solution is evergreen and it will be all that I need. This app will be all that I need instead of realizing that maybe this app will help me with one part of my journey and then I need to graduate and I need to move to a different app or a different product, a different solution, a different kind of advice, perhaps even. Okay, I'm setting my notifications in my calendar every three months just to check in to make sure I'm still on track and not letting the apps, you know, create a permanent default that um that won't work for me in the future. So I think that is definitely an easy thing we can all do and we should do it. Okay. So I always have a, a final question I like to sneak in, and it's usually the most interesting one whatsoever. Is there anything we've missed that you'd like to add? Like anything that makes your heart sing, something that can help people or something you just find interesting? And you're all quiet. 
<laughs> I know. I was thinking about the remark that you had just made was really where I wanted to to go because I think that taking that perspective of it needs to be a journey rather than a one-time behavior is you know what I'm seeing across a lot of the projects that we're doing whether it's in the area of, of debt repayment or you know advice or, or retirement planning for instance and I, I think that yeah people just convince themselves that the solution that served them is the solution that is going to always be good for them um, something else I think that's really interesting and it does come out of what we experienced during the pandemic is the social aspect of all of this. I feel that there has oftentimes been a social taboo where people are afraid to talk about money or they're afraid to have certain types of money conversations, right? I mean, yes, maybe we talk about, um, you know, retirement planning with our families, but how often maybe are we having conversations about debt? And I think that during the pandemic, what we saw is that these are the sorts of conversations that became de rigueur. They were really more common on, common than, than what they had been um, because you know many people in our communities, ourselves included maybe, were, were experiencing uh, the financial uncertainty and really just you know, overall uncertainty in our lives that, that opened it up. Um, so I think that what we must not lose sight of is that we are influenced not only by biases that you know we've talked about today, but also very obviously by experiences that we've been having. And that the pandemic has been this force that has changed our relationship with money, our relationship with others in relationship to money. And that that's an area that we can perhaps take advantage of when it comes to uh, strategies that we might be using ourselves or conversations we might be wanting to have or continue uh, with those in our lives. So that's something that I think is a big area of promise. And um, I think just to sort of build on what Michelle said, um, people tend to think that with, especially with behavioral economics um, and behavioral science, there's always sort of a silver bullet solution to uh, you know, problematic uh, financial decision making, and it's really not. It's a matter of focusing on the particular context and building uh, upon tactics and building upon strategy and building really a comprehensive solution that draws upon these different behavioral um, principles. Uh, and that's what we often uh, really work with and do with our clients. We build comprehensive solutions that draw upon bits and pieces of different uh, behavioral research, be that scarcity mindset, be that present uh, bias, be that uh, focusing on your future self, leveraging loss aversion, et cetera, et cetera, leveraging reminders and how you input them into your uh, individual life. That's really uh, up to you uh, and, and what works for you. How can you make things more salient? How can you make them more digestible, you know, by chunking? How can you set reminders that work for you? How can you make uh, things a bit more tangible so that that pain of, of, of buying becomes a bit more real for you? Not too real, but real enough. How maybe you leverage your friends and your peers to help you stay committed to those financial goals. Um, those are all principles and the right recipe and the right mixture of all of those really is, you know, a case by case thing. Right. And, and this is what you do at BE Works. You know, you work specifically with companies to help them narrow down 
to what's really happening within their business. Absolutely. So thank you, Michelle and Juan, for joining me today and helping us improve our financial behavior with a little bit of nudges, a lot of science, and a whole lot of knowledge. Thank you so much, Michelle and Juan. Thanks so much for having us. It was great fun. (laughs) Thank you very much, Carrie. It was a real treat. Thank you. Okay. Talk to you soon. Hey guys, thanks for joining us on the Cash and Carry podcast. I really value your time here. If you haven't already subscribed, please do so now. And if you could drop a review on your podcasting platform, I would really appreciate it because it helps other people find us. Thank you.